0: Disinformation is far from a new phenomenon, but it now travels through a highly fragmented media landscape at a speed and scale that makes it even harder to combat. How do we communicate and build trust when it can be hard to discern the true from the false? How can democratic societies exist without a basic sense of shared reality? In a world full of disinformation, these questions are increasingly being put to leaders from organizations to governments.
1: Keep in mind the tactics are constantly changing, so what happened in, around the 2016 elections is not what happened in the 2020 elections. It's not what's happening now. So get yourself educated because you need to know both as you know as a citizen of the world, but also to protect your own organizations.
0: Vivian Schiller is the executive director of Aspen Digital, which is part of the Aspen Institute. Aspen Digital empowers everyone from policymakers to companies to be responsible stewards of technology and media to ensure an informed, just, and equitable world. On this episode what to know about this information, and what we can do about it. I'm Elliot Mizrahi, and this is The New CCO.
1: I have a very eclectic uh, career. I began as a, a Russian tour guide and simultaneous interpreter, so uh, clearly I had no uh, career plan. I basically quickly fell into media, fell in love with it, particularly journalism, and particularly looking and thinking and working on journalism and how it is both impacted by emerging technologies and also can be um, advanced and can take advantage of emerging technologies to do the work that journalism exists on Earth to do, which is to um, give people the information they need to uh, participate in society. So. You know, they. Uh, I don't usually walk around quoting Kierkegaard, but I will quote Kierkegaard uh, here. And you know, who said something like, "Life is lived forward, but understood backwards." And when I look backwards, even though I didn't recognize it at the time, it was sort of, sort of like, "What is the next frontier for journalism?" And so that's why I was doing, you know, documentaries at, at CNN. I was then. Um, I was at the New York Times um, advancing, running nytimes.com at the beginning of the mobile era and really advancing that work. I was the CEO of NPR and really sort of pushing um, on the limits of what digital uh, media can do for public radio and public media. I was the global head of news at Twitter. I then worked on a blockchain startup around um, news and information. And what led me to Aspen is the role that was, that sort of dangled in front of me was to reimagine and build a program that gets at all of these things that I had spent my career um, working on and, and caring about, and to build a program, build a team, run that team, and meet what to me right now in my career are the three most important criteria, which is, is it interesting, is it important, and is it fun?
0: So I'm, I'm interested just for a moment to talk about journalism and truth, <laughs> uh, because we're, we'll get into disinformation, which feels more intentional, yeah. but it also feels like the information environment now, uh, is sort of more tenuous. Uh, there's all these sources and different definitions of what reality is. And it sort of reminds me of, uh, an experience I had with Wikipedia where their idea of truth is not about what's necessarily true in reality it's how well something can be sourced (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so they don't concern themselves with what's actually true which is a crowdsourcing way to develop understanding i'm wondering what your thoughts are just in terms of the state of journalism and truth today in the information environment
1: well first of all i have to say you know wikipedia is doing pretty pretty darn good um you know basing your source of truth on sourcing and evidence is certainly not a bad way to start uh it is also uh in short supply in many um on many media platforms right now so um you know hats off to 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 wikipedia they are not journalism um they don't pretend to be journalism because journalism takes those same um qualities which is evidence sourcing sources, more than one source, and adds to that uh, other layers, which is um, bearing witness. What do we see and hear as journalists with our own eyes and ears? Um, other, um, other eyewitnesses or people who are experiencing an event or a phenomenon or, or whatever it is, the issue that you're, that you're covering, and the impact and implications um, of those news events. And if you stitch all that together, you get at something resembling uh, journalism, particularly if you are sure to um, give all sides a listen, which doesn't mean giving them equal weight, we can come back to that in a minute, Um, but that you approach your work with a sense of fairness um, and with an open mind, not having preconceived notions of where your reporting will lead you. And everything that I just described is in look, I, I think in many ways, this is the golden age of journalism. There has never been so much good, high quality journalism coming from multiple sources. At the same time, the environment is so crowded that um, a lot of those wonderful sources of news and information can be drowned out by um, those who don't live by the values of, of veracity. So it, we're living at a very complicated times.
0: How do you think Journalists ought to strike the balance between truth, what is accurate and real, and the understandable desire to give voice to both sides of an issue.
1: In your reporting, you listen to all sides. Um, That doesn't mean that you report on all sides equally. There is no obligation in journalism, there's no ethical or moral imperative to give voice to someone or to sources uh, that are proven false just to present the so-called other side. And I, I, I say that with air quotes. There are lots and lots of clear-cut examples and I'll name a few in a second. There are other areas that are a little bit squishier. So clear-cut examples include the fact that uh, global warming and climate change is real. The science is you know, indisputable. <laughs> or to use an even starker terms, um, the Holocaust happened. Um, evolution is actually a thing um, that is true. Um, you know, we can go, go on and on about things where there, there is demonstrable, overwhelming evidence, and there's no reason why a journalist should say, some think that uh, climate change is real. Others think, you know, and let's let's get a quote from so-and-so who thinks it's all made up. That's nonsense. You don't do that. But there's a lot of topics around social issues that get honestly much trickier. And, you know, that's, that's why it's uh, being a journalist and reporting on stories is hard work.
0: Let's turn to disinformation. Actually, misinformation and disinformation, which I think are terms that are sometimes conflated or used interchangeably. How would you describe the difference between the two?
1: Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward. It has to do with intention. Misinformation are falsehoods because somebody doesn't know better and they're repeating what they heard uh, or what they think. Uh, They're not trying to deceive someone. They are expressing something, even if it's false, that they believe to be true. Disinformation, uh, the intention there is to deceive, um, to, to persuade people or, or usually uh, masses of people to believe something to be true when it's demonstrably false. So, you know, misinformation can be weaponized and turned into disinformation. And conversely, disinformation, intentional falsehoods can be shared, you know, again, I'm using the air quotes, innocently um, by someone who believes them to be true and is doing the bidding of the person who would propagate disinformation, but they don't know any better. So it's, again, it's intention.
0: Uh, Aspen Institute has done some research into disinformation and its effects on society. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and, and findings of that work?
1: Sure. So we, um, in the beginning of uh, last year of, of 2021, we pull, we put together something That uh, called the Commission on Information Disorder. And information disorder is a term that we selected uh, over mis- and disinformation because it's more expansive. Mis- and disinformation really to me implies the pieces of content. Uh, Information disorder has to do with the impact of mis- and disinformation has on society. So we wanted to take a little bit of a broader lens. And that expression comes from Dr. Claire Wardle, who's an expert in the space and is now leading a lot of this work at at Brown. So we pulled together a group of about 15 or 16 people, I can't remember now off the top of my head, uh, experts that come from different sectors, researchers, journalists, uh, philanthropists, politicians, uh, First Amendment um, experts, uh, technologists, and we locked them up for six months. We didn't literally lock them up, but we we made it, we committed them to uh, in the first few months, two hours a week, and then in the later stages, it was you know many many more hours a week to examine all of the issues, examine um, the research. There was no original research done by this group to listen to experts and to come together, you know, with our assistance in terms of moderating these meetings to. Decide what were the priority issues around that need to be solved for information disorder and then to come up with a set of recommendations. In the end, uh, we released a document that we put out uh, in late fall of last year that has a set of about 15 recommendations that fall into three categories. The categories are recommendations to increase transparency. This has to do with the kind of transparency coming out of the tech companies about what how people are or aren't accessing, sharing, consuming information. There's a set of those, advertising, et cetera. Second category was recommendations to build trust. And this has to do with uh, communities. It has to do with diversity. It has to do with uh, local media's decline and how we we try to rehabilitate that. It has to do with accountability norms. And then the third category was recommendations to reduce harms. Um, because information disorder, even online, has real-world harms to communities, particularly underrepresented communities, communities of color, and to individuals. And there's a set of recommendations there uh, that have to do with sort of civic empowerment amendments to certain legislation and recommendations, um, and some recommendations to um The tech companies, in terms of trying to protect certain, you know, communities from harmful content that could lead to real-world consequences, so we put that uh, report out last year, and uh, we've been really we're a pleased by the reception. Again, there was not, yeah, I I don't mean to diminish our own work to say there wasn't an original idea there. The idea was uh, looking across all of the great work that many have done and elevating, you know, trying to explain um, the phenomenon and sort of elevate the best ideas and then bring those to governments, you know, state, local state and federal government to private industry, both on the, in the tech private industry, but also, um, major corporations. I, I, I expect we're going to talk about that again in a minute, uh, civil society groups, the media to try to advance these recommendations. And in fact, they are advancing, which we're really pleased to see.
0: You'd mentioned first amendment. What are the boundaries of what people can say vis-a-vis disinformation in the US where we have a First Amendment, but also in other parts of the world where they may have something similar or not at all?
1: I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. <laughs> it is one of the hallmarks of this country that in many ways it, you know, differentiates us from democracies around the world. It is an incredibly, incredibly important value and um, at the center of American democracy, full stop. That said, freedom of speech is not the same thing as freedom of consequence from your speech. And I think that's what we're seeing play out.
0: Can you share a couple of examples of disinformation that illustrate its danger and consequences?
1: Well, sort of an an obvious one is disinformation that dissuades groups of people from voting or misleads them about what they're voting for or misleads them about when and where they are voting. So disinformation that basically disenfranchises American citizens from their, their constitutionally protected right to vote. And we have seen this uh, over and over again, including in the primaries this summer, just really misleading information. And so that is absolutely a real world consequence but because of the power of our mobile, digital, social media societies, these messages, it's much easier to amplify them at scale and in spe- at, at speed, and also to obscure motivations and sources of where that information is coming from, which makes it so much more dangerous.
0: Yeah, the speed and scale, I think, is certainly what differentiates the issue today. Um, and and that reminds me of the platforms on which that information spreads and and how quickly, uh, I have to say, I, I, have, uh, real sympathy for platforms struggling with how to regulate that kind of speech. Um, and so I won't ask you for your view on what they should or shouldn't be doing, but I wonder if you can talk, if you're able to talk a little bit about what they do do, to try to ensure that that kind of blatantly misleading information doesn't propagate.
1: Yeah. Well, and and, and I agree with you. I mean, I think one thing that gets lost because people just don't know is content moderation decisions. Content moderation is a term that includes everything from taking something down entirely to downranking it so fewer people can see it. A lot of the time, they're incredibly difficult decisions to make. I mean, there are some obvious ones, illegal content, child exploitation content, you know, copyright infringements, things like that, things that put cause uh, imminent harm. Those are easier calls to make. But most, like most things in life, and it's been the theme of this conversation, you know, other kinds of speech, there's a tremendous amount of, of nuance around whether they should be taken down or not. The, the second difficulty is, you know, a lot of these tech platforms are so huge that to try to implement these policies at scale is very difficult. So I'm going I'm saying those two things in defense of the major social media platforms. That said, um, they need to be a whole heck of a lot better than they are now. And, you know, some of the worst offenders are Facebook um, and Instagram. And this is not just my opinion, this is, you know, based on the kind of data that organizations that are collecting information about everything from hate speech to false information about, you know, vaccines and voting, it is rampant. And um, I'm not suggesting that there's, you know, somebody, you know, sort of gleefully rubbing their hands together in a back room saying, yes, this is what we want. On the other hand, um, I think certain decisions that they could make or maybe not made in the interest of keeping people engaged, which is how they make their money. One huge step in the right direction, which we recommend in our Commission on Information Disorder report, is to provide much, much greater transparency to researchers, to to qualified researchers, academics, and to qualified journalists so that people outside of the four walls of of the tech companies can look at the data and understand how that data travels, what kind of content leads to uh, negative consequences, to enlist the broader community of people that care about these issues to help.
0: Do you foresee or expect that there would be some kind of regulation that would compel the sort of transparency or intervention that these platforms should be making?
1: We are in a very a difficult political environment. <laughs> That's probably the understatement of the year in the United States. States are getting a little bit more traction, California in particular, and some other states have, have put um, some, int- are starting to put some interesting rules into place, but it's difficult to get this done because anytime you're talking about content moderation, it very quickly becomes political. Everybody thinks that platforms are doing it wrong. But generally speaking, and I'm painting this with a very broad brush, people on the right think that the, the, the failure of the platforms is that there is too much content moderation, what they might call censorship. And people on the right think there is not enough and that too much uh, content is causing harms. So these are pretty philosophically intractable issues to, uh, to bridge. That said, A lot of the regulatory heat is happening in Europe. And the thing about regulation of platforms, digital platforms, is no matter where you are in the world, uh, and Europe is obviously a huge market, in order for the platforms to comply with some of the regulation that Europe is enacting, that has to do with not just content as seen in Europe, but content as seen by Europeans wherever they are in the world. Will f- has to force the platforms to comply with some of these regulations on a global level. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're pro-regulation, you owe a, a great uh, debt of gratitude to the Europeans for, for doing the work that uh, U.S. regulators have not been able to do.
0: Hmm. So I want to jump off of that and, and, and look more societally, and, and particularly at democracies, in the States, we've got, as you mentioned earlier, a <laughs> very not insignificant number of people in this country who believe the previous presidential election was rigged or stolen. And all of this, to me, sort of speaks to the ability to trust what one sees or hears. What are your thoughts about the implications of this reality on disinformation and mis- misinformation on democracy?
1: It's it's absolutely Massive and, quite frankly, a huge risk at, uh, at, at a global level. I mean, it is, you know, part of the uh, autocrat's playbook is to get people to distrust sources that they might previously have trusted, whether those sources are uh, news media sources, whether they are local community leaders, uh, and to just cause the seed of doubt uh, that what they, what people are hearing, what they're seeing with their own eyes, what they're experiencing, maybe isn't true. Because if you can create that doubt, then into that vacuum can flow the the autocrat or the wannabe autocrat to say, you know what, you can't trust anyone. There are no sources of truth. So just listen to me. I will be your source of truth. And this is, you know, this this goes back the millennia. And it was certainly, uh, you know, played out, uh, in, uh, Nazi Germany and, you know, we are seeing this play out in countries all over the world where, uh, democracy is in, on, uh, in decline. Um, Freedom House that has been tracking a democracy for, uh, many, many years is, you know, captures the data around year after year of decline. Autocracies are on the rise. Democracies are, uh either at, at serious risk or a little bit wobbly in more countries than ever before. And frankly, we've seen, even in, in the United States, um, you know, attempts to say, to discredit the news media, uh, enemy of the people, fake news coming from the White House, and to say uh, the media are all a pack of liars. Uh, again, the implication being your single source of truth should be me.
0: hmm Um, let's talk about the role of business. So, uh, something that Paige has focused on quite a bit over the last couple of years is a stakeholder capitalism philosophy and the idea that business has a role to play in society. Um, and, and at the same time, businesses are operating in this information environment that has all this, uh, disinformation and misinformation flowing through it, uh, what should businesses be doing um, either to protect their own interests or to contribute to solutions that can improve uh, yeah. the situation for society at large?
1: Yeah, uh, a lot is the answer. Look, you know, we have seen, um, uh, and, and I think that the gap, uh, the divide is only growing, you know, year after year with the, in, with the Edelman Trust Index, uh, when looking at who are the groups that are most trusted uh Uh, corporate leadership is, you know, uh, is, is now sort of has a huge lead. I mean, that's partly because uh, trust uh, levels for politicians and for journalists has fallen so low. Uh, But, uh, but nonetheless, people trust, uh, you know, CEOs of companies and C-suites and corporate executives. And so with that brings a huge amount of responsibility. But I wanna be careful to say that this isn't just about the actions that, that you know, companies should take when it comes to misinformation, and disinformation, information disorder, is not just because it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing for their business and for all of their stakeholders, um, you know, uh, not just for society at large. Um, it's, it's really, really important because as the media environment if it continues to become more polarized and more mistrusted, that is destroying the platforms with which um, companies reach their um, their customers and their clients. If there's no safe platform, because you know every entertainment or media platform either only reaches you know one or another part of the country, then then where are they going to show up? And and how are businesses going to be able to? keep the American people with them if they are, you know, more and more fall into camps. So I just want to really make the point that this is, this is critical to businesses. It's not just about societal good, which it is about societal good. What are
0: some real things that business could do? I mean, I've heard, you know, the idea that companies like Facebook and Instagram, I mean, their money's coming from these companies, right? They're advertising on the platform because the ability to target, and that's understandably appealing to marketers but at the same time that ad revenue is supporting platforms that companies could be making a point should be doing more. So in what ways could they exert the kind of influence that would create change here?
1: Right. So will you, so let's list a few. So you named one, which is, um, you know, advertisers, uh, companies are the economic engine of the social media platforms. That is far and away. The business model is advertising, um, from organizations and individual of all sizes. Um, when you when you put that much money into uh, into an a, 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 an ecosystem, you have a lot of control, and so the way that uh, companies spend their money and who they spend it with has got to be much more mindful. Um, you know, it, it's not just a matter. This is beyond. This isn't just about oh, sleeping giants. You should pull your you know ads off Tucker Carlson, which is probably a good idea, but that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm making a point that I think is, uh, is more nuanced than that, which is, you know, programmatic advertising, um, wh- whereby, you know, a company can, can, you know, doesn't have to do the hard work of picking, you know, perfect, uh, li- aligned um, platforms and de- you know, uh, programmatic advertising is a problem because, um, much of the programmatic advertising, and you know, we all know these stories anecdotally, show up in places where you probably don't want your brand, and you're providing revenue to um, to so-called publishers. Well, they are publishers, but they're bad faith publishers who are propagating harms, lies, toxic, you know, content. So, as an industry, I would like to see much greater scrutiny and demand of scrutiny from uh, the ad exchanges and the programmatic uh, ad markets. Additionally, uh, you know, the same thing goes for the platforms. You know, a lot of money goes to, to Facebook and Google, less so Twitter, but, you know, and their subsidiaries like YouTube, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I realize, I do recognize these are very, very efficient platforms because of the the targeting capability, which is, why these companies have become so big and so rich and so powerful. That said, both for um, altruistic reasons and also for uh, uh, self-preservation, um, finding ways to wean yourself off of enabling platforms that do toxic work uh, uh and not all of their work is toxic, but uh, how that money is being spent is really, really critically important. So that's sort of thing too. Um, Conversely, you know, we just talked about two things to mitigate harms. There are other things that, um, if you take sort of look at it from the other point of view, which is what can companies do in terms of the way they uh, spend their money, Um, they can uh, enable um, good actors, reward good actors, news organizations, um, that, uh, you know, also can reach, you know, specific targeted, um, targeted, uh, audiences, um, who need the advertising dollars. That would be a much safer environment, frankly, for a lot of brands. Um, so that, that those, those three things have to do with how, you know, advertising money is spent. Then there's the issue of what, you know, uh, being mindful of your own potential risk when it comes to the mis- and disinformation environment, you know, stories, there are stories galore, and I'm sure uh, you've talked about them on your podcast and on your platforms of reputational risks to brands from, you know, miss and disinformation and for companies to be really, really savvy about that and to stay up to date and to either bring on board or uh you know, in-house or work with agencies or others who can detect early on, you know, risks to brands that come from mis and disinformation, um, and to figure out how to how to mitigate those. It keeps them from going into the general uh, population and polluting the environment. It also helps protect those you know companies' bottom line. And CEOs are targeted. You know, brands are targeted, um, employees are targeted, and you know this is not going to go away. Further, I would suggest that there are things, you know, particularly depending on the on the on the company. There's a lot that um, that I think um, companies and and I would you know suggest chief communications officers can think about in terms of at the community level. You know, it's really at the community level where polarization hurts the most, but it's also at the level where the greatest strides can be made. There are so many wonderful experiments and frankly, a lot of successes um, that groups, civil society groups have learned, local community groups about how to bridge the divide, how to talk across differences, how to get people to understand each other. That's That's really hard to do at a national level. It's slightly less hard to do when it's neighbor to neighbor. And there are things that companies can do to enable those kinds of, um, uh, efforts and platforms and communication. Um, and there again, I would argue it also is, uh, uh, brand enhancing. So those are just, you know, just a few things that, that companies can do, but the key thing is to be aware, to stay educated, to engage. Um, we at the Aspen Institute are going to be convening, um, C-suite executives, uh, to talk about what, uh, what, Companies can do uh, and what their role is in information disorder, um, because there's there's much more work to do.
0: What what steps should organizations with an international footprint take?
1: Oh gosh, well the same as a domestic uh, footprint, um, which is get yourself really educated uh, at the highest level of your organization. Make sure that you know you're you're talking to to, to folks that understand. Uh, you know, to use the Gretzky term, where the puck is going when it comes to information disorder. Because keep in mind, the tactics are constantly changing. So, you know, what what we what what happened in t- around the twenty sixteen elections is not what happened in the twenty twenty elections. It's not what's happening now. So, get yourself mm-hmm. educated because you need to know both as you know as a citizen of the world, but also to protect your own organizations. Get the capabilities to be able to track. Um, you know, emerging mis- and disinformation about your own brands, um, examine where you're spending your money, um, where it's going, where your messaging is showing up, um, and get involved, uh, at the local and community level, you know, anywhere in the world, uh, because that's where the rubber, you know, meets the road.
0: Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about deep fakes a couple of years ago. Um, there seemed to have been more attention paid to it. It was certainly something that Paige was a little bit more focused on than recently. Yeah. And and I want to read you this quote and get your reaction to this. It's a quote from Franklin Foer in The Atlantic. He writes, mm-hmm. we'll shortly live in a world where our eyes routinely deceive us. But differently, we're not so far from the collapse of reality. Is that a dystopian overstatement? Or do you a think that's bit. the trajectory?
1: Uh, well... Uh... First of all, my, I, you know, anybody that has a crystal tells you they can see into their crystal ball is is making it up or, or, or fooling themselves. Uh, I do think that there there is a notion called the liar's dividend. It sort of gets at what I was uh, talking about before um, in terms of if you can get somebody to uh, distrust everything they see and hear, it benefits you. So that's basically a liar's dividend. And it's the same thing with deep fakes, which is, you know, the the notion that the immediate repercussion when deep fakes really, you know, come online at scale is that people will believe them. But then very quickly, you know, what will happen is no one will believe anything at all. And, you know, so that's the liar's dividend. That said, um, there was a lot of panic around deep fakes. I think that's what you're you're, you're suggesting you guys and many uh, of us were paying attention to a few years ago, because academics were creating deep fakes and going, look, look what's possible, this is coming for you. It hasn't really happened. And, um, and I think, I mean, where it's happened is really horrible, nefarious things like revenge porn, but it hasn't really happened in, in, in at, at scale at a geopolitical environment. And partly it's because detection technology has now at, at a point where it will be pretty, it's much easier to detect even as deepfakes fakes get more sophisticated, it's easier to detect them. So it, it hasn't really panned out. Um, and frankly, of all the things that I worry about in, a, in in an information disordered world, that's probably not in my top 10. Mm-hmm.
0: Vivian, this was uh, really, really helpful and informative. Is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask you about that you think businesses ought to know about this issue?
1: Yeah. Um, Gosh, just uh, I, I will only just add, which is uh, businesses are not on the sidelines. Um, it's not just about tech companies. Um, all companies, and particularly uh, executive leaders, and particularly global leaders of big brands, have a crucial, crucial role to play. It is not just about doing what's right for society or societies. It's about protecting their businesses um, and protecting the environments that we all will rely on um, going forward.
0: Thank you so much, Vivian. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at PAGE.org. Special thanks to Rivet360, our podcast partner. Without whose support, we simply would not be able to bring this podcast to you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO.